through the book of Ephesians. And last week we finally got through the book, and uh, this week there are some questions that I've been given over this series, and so we're going to through some of those questions. If you have your, if you were given a bulletin this morning, those questions are in the middle of your bulletin. And uh, this is one of those ideas that I thought a couple months ago that this sounded like a great idea to uh, answer these questions. And then I got to this week and I was like, oh man, what have I done? Um, just some interesting questions. And, and I'm excited about that because I think it means that we've been uh, reading together through this book. Um, we've been trying to process what does this mean practically for our life together and uh, how do we live for Jesus? How do we live out our faith every day? And so we're going to uh, dive into some of these questions this morning. Um, if you haven't been with us through this whole series, um, hopefully these questions uh, prompt some further discussion and conversation, and um, it takes you about eh, half an hour to 45 minutes to read through the book of Ephesians in one sitting, so uh, maybe that's some afternoon reading for you this afternoon. But as we look at these questions, would you pray with me? <coughs> Jesus, thank you um, for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for this letter of Ephesians that, that Paul wrote and for how it encourages us in our faith, but also in our everyday life to, to think about what it means to follow Jesus in everything that we do. So as we look at these questions this morning, um, I thank you for a church willing to wrestle with questions and have conversation about what it means to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've got these questions and um, permission this morning, um, but I'm sure only this morning, to disagree with me uh, on some of the responses I give, although I... Uh, I think I'm right. No. <clears throat> um, given, given some um, insight into some of these questions, some of these questions um, are better probably answered or wrestled with in a conversation. Um, I'm going to do the best that I can with this medium of a sermon to kind of give you some thoughts and some places uh, for us to continue in some conversation. But the first question that I have there uh, that I've been asked, uh, not just in this series, but even before this, this series, and a question that people ask in the church, it comes out of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 to 13, that says this, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you, were heard, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And the question comes about this word predestined. And uh, it's mentioned a little bit earlier, a couple verses earlier in Ephesians. And what does it mean to be predestined? And in the large, larger church, there are these complex ideas that come with this word predestined. There are some folks in the church that believe from the very beginning of creation, or even before creation, 
God knew and predetermined who was going to respond to the gospel and who was going to be saved, experience salvation, and who was not. And that was known and predetermined by God from the very beginning. The other kind of end of the spectrum, and I think this happens on a, on a spectrum, is that there are folks that say God gives us free will, an option to choose to follow him or not. And perhaps God knows that choice, but God does not determine that choice. He doesn't make that choice for us. And so what's happening here in this uh, scripture that says that we were uh, predestined? Um, you know, there's a whole lot of baggage that comes with some words in Scripture, and predestined is, is one of those words that comes with a whole lot of baggage. And honestly, I think when we read this Scripture in the context of the series, I don't think this is a main point for Paul, this idea of who's predestined who's not predestined. And so we read it from the NRSV, and the NRSV version, translation of the Bible, just says we were destined, and we didn't have to wrestle with this baggage of this word predestined. Anyway, uh, I think our real dilemma is about the word we. Who is predestined in this scripture? The beginning of Ephesians, Paul's talking about the difference between Jews and Gentiles, okay? And so when we look at this verse, who is predestined to sonship in verse 5 and 11? Are all God's people somehow predestined? To me, it seems as though Paul is initially distinguishing between the covenant people of Abraham who are chosen and blessed by God because they are in the line of Abraham. And so this is the, the, the Jewish folks in the, in the time of Paul and Jesus. And the Gentiles who come to learn about salvation through a Jewish Messiah. Remember that Paul goes on to talk about how the Gentiles were once without hope. They didn't have the Torah. They didn't know any better. They didn't know who the Messiah was. They had no way of having relationship with God. But Paul talks about the hope and the salvation that is now open to the Gentiles because of what the Jewish Messiah or Christ Jesus has done. And Paul goes on in Ephesians to talk about how the dividing wall that, that once uh, separated Jew and Gentile is now gone. And Jesus is that peace, is the peace between us. And so I think what Paul would say, um, or the way I understand him here, is to say that the Jews were predestined because they were the children of Abraham and Abraham's line was blessed. They were chosen from the beginning. But now God's salvation is also being made available to those that weren't part of that line, who don't have the right blood type, who didn't have it in their genetics. And I think that is good news. So that's what I think Paul's talking about, being predestined there. Uh, question number B. If Christ is supreme over all, how does this truth support challenge or intersect with our current cultural values of inclusion, pluralism, and secularism? I was glad I was emailed this question because uh, when I first heard the words, I was like, I had to remind myself what, what these terms even mean. 
And this verse comes out, uh, this question comes out of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 22 through 23. And it says, And God placed all things under the feet, under his feet, talking about Jesus, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Um, and so this passage is talking about how Christ is the head of everything, is over everything, is reigning over everything for the church. Paul is talking about the power of God, and he says it's the same power God used to raise Jesus from the dead, and that God then raised and exalted Jesus to the seat and placed all rule, authority, power, and dominion under the feet of Christ. And so then the question that I was given was, how does this intersect with inclusion, pluralism, and secularism? Hmm. Well, first, let me remind us that Ephesians says that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Paul talks about our battle is against rulers and authorities in, in the and dark powers in the heavenly realms. So let's talk about Inclusion. I believe anyone and everyone is welcome to come under the loving, gracious, and compassionate reign of Christ. It is open to everyone to proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior. And when we expose our lives to the light of of Christ and allow the light to point out the darkness that we all deal with. And so praise God that his gospel, that the good news is not open to a few select folks. It's open to everyone. Now there's this question here of pluralism. And I think uh, pluralism is this idea that uh, we're becoming aware of in um, the United States that there are different religions and different philosophies that are out there, that people believe. And, and I say that we're becoming aware of this in the United States because I think for a long time it was assumed that folks were, were primarily Christian. Folks primarily went to church on Sunday. Now, this is uh, pluralism. The existence of other religions, other philosophies uh, of life is not a new thing. This is, has existed uh, from almost the very beginning, that folks were believing and doing and practicing all kinds of different things. And so for me, um, pluralism is something that happens, it's just kind of a, a fact of life, when the reign of Christ, the kingdom of God, refuses to coerce people into the kingdom of God. It's a fact of history that at one time, um, folks in the church were holding swords to people and saying, be baptized, follow Jesus, or die. And I think that is evil and wrong and sinful. I think what Jesus and what the, what the good news points to is that Jesus came to die as a sacrifice for all. But he doesn't force 
anyone to receive that gift. He doesn't force anyone into the kingdom of God. It is a choice. And he, I believe, wants all of us to be in relationship with him. But at some point, God also acknowledges that some folks choose not to follow Jesus and follow the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to sit back and, and say, well, we're just going to let everything be the way that it wants to be. I, I think we have a, a responsibility to proclaim the good news of Jesus, to proclaim uh, salvation through, through Jesus. But at some point, too, we have to accept that folks can receive that or not. It's not up to us to beat people over the head with a Bible. That doesn't bring people into the, king, into the loving kingdom of God. And I believe it grieves God when folks choose not to live in relationship with him. And I think it should grieve us too. But as God accepts our decisions, I think we need to speak truth in love and let folks make their decision. Let the chips fall where they may, which is kind of hard for us. Um, the last part of that question was about secularism. And I think secularism is where um, our culture kind of says, look, you can believe whatever you want to believe, but leave it out of the public sphere. Don't bring your faith, your philosophy, your religion into the workplace. Don't bring it into uh, school. Uh, don't, you know, whatever you do in your home is fine, but don't bring it out here. And I think this idea is completely foreign to Paul and to Jesus and to the entire ancient world, right? Folks uh, had all kinds of different beliefs in ancient Rome, and they wore it on their sleeves. It impacted who they ate with. It impacted what they ate. It impacted all kinds of parts of their life. In fact, uh, Jews and Christians were often considered in the ancient Roman world to be atheists because they had only one God. Can you imagine having only one God? But for Romans, that was insane because they had all kinds of gods. Okay? I think um, what Jesus, what Paul called us to do is the opposite of that, is to make our faith a part of of every sphere, every part of our life. I think what the church needs to do is to allow our faith to spill over into more areas of our life. Our jobs, our families, our activities, our economics. Like following Jesus is meant to impact everything about who we are and how we live. So I have a little bit of an issue with that um, cultural value of secularism. Moving on. Next question that we were given was, what are some common ways that we as Christians, or specifically the Church of the Brethren, which Spring Creek we're a part of, grieve the Holy Spirit? And this comes out of uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Sorry. And it says, um, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed 
for the day of redemption. So let me look at you know, the question, how does the church today grieve the Holy Spirit? Man, there's all kinds of things that we could start to nitpick about the church and the way that we allow um, the world to kind of set the agenda for the church or to set the mentality for the church. Uh, um, these other values that, that spill into the church or um, you know, nationalism that spills into the church and impacts the agenda of, of the church. Um, we can talk about how that grieves the Holy Spirit. But let me look at what Paul says here in Ephesians. How is Paul instructing the church to live in this passage? Paul says that we're to put off falsehood and speak truthfully. So we're going to keep going on there. He says, in your anger, do not sin. And look, the American church and the church's brethren is no different. We have plenty of angry people trying to speak truth to folks. Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. And I think sometimes in, in what we call righteous indignation, that means I have a right to be angry, we do a lot of sinning. So we need to be careful about that. Uh, you know, there's a huge kingdom's worth of difference between speaking the truth in love, and sometimes truth is hard, and sometimes love is difficult, and love is hard. We talk about tough love. There's a huge difference between that and, I said during the series, being a jerk, right? And, and, and I think we need to be careful about that. Uh, Paul says in verse 29, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. And then verse 30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Paul goes on to say, get rid of bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. But instead, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So, how can we as Christians, or specifically the Church of the Brethren, grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, I think it starts in the way we treat one another. When our meetings sometimes in our denomination, in our district, are characterized more by bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, and malice, and are not characterized by kindness, compassion, and forgiveness, we have some repenting to do. So there's that for starters. In the context of Ephesians, uh, which tells us so much about Christ being our peace and breaking down the dividing walls of hostility and talks about the unity of the body of Christ. I think it grieves the spirit that the church of the brethren, which we are a part of, which is a church that has a history of advocating for peace and reconciliation. One of the things that we are struggling most with right now as a body is peace and reconciliation. Not sure what kind of peace witness we have when our meeting together is characterized by those things that Paul says to get rid of. And those things that Paul says were to display seem like a dream. Well, look, 
it would be easy to keep going on a list of all the things that the church in America needs to deal with. And for sure, we are not the people that God wants us to be yet. And the church is not the bride that he desires us to become. But I realize, too, that we can often start bad-mouthing the bride of Christ beyond just trying to help her become who she was meant to be. Katie's my wife. And if you start bad-mouthing Katie and and putting her down, you're going to put my nonviolence to the test. (laughs) Because she's my wife, and I love her. Now, does that mean I put blinders on and pretend that she is absolutely perfect? Yes. Yes. That's what that means. She knows that I'm not perfect, but I have not figured that out about her yet. Look, I think Jesus knows. He's not naive enough to think that his bride to the church is everything he wants her to be. He knows. And yet he loves his bride passionately. He wants her to become everything she was meant to be. And there are some lofty goals for the church here in Ephesians. I don't think Paul believes that The church in Ephesus or Rome or anywhere else has achieved what God wants the church to be. But are we helping her become more who she, the church, was meant to be? Look, when I was younger, shortly after college, when I knew everything, um, I thought it would be great to start a church where we did everything the right way. And of course, you know, I just graduated. So I knew what that right thing was. I knew the way God wanted the church to be. And so why don't we just go and start that perfect church? Problem would be I would be there and other people would be there and it would all go out the window really quick. It's interesting. Uh, some of you know Ryan Brought. He, he was the youth pastor here at one time. And um, he's now with a, a church. It's a, it's a congregation It's been 10 years um, that he's been with Veritas, and it started as a church plant. And I was on the steering committee when that started. And in my foolishness, I thought, um, you know, church planting, that would be something really neat because you wouldn't have to deal with traditions and, and people saying, oh, that's the way we've always done it because it's a church plant. There is no way that it's already. You know, 10 years down the road, that church has problems. People are involved. Not everybody sees eye to eye. And you know what? There's just no such thing as the perfect church and the perfect group of people. And do you know whose fault that is? That the church is not a perfect place? Well, okay, I'm not going to say it's his fault. Um, But do you know who's okay with that? Jesus picks the first people in the church And he doesn't pick the smartest and the brightest and the most theologically astute folks. He picks some fishermen and some tax collectors that are some pretty thick-headed, dense 
people who don't always get what's going on, who uh, betray and deny and doubt and walk away from and sometimes come back, and they just don't always get it. And Jesus chooses them to start the church. So, yes, the church in the United States, the Church of the Brethren, Spring Creek here, we are not who we are supposed to be yet. And I pray by God's grace that we'll keep moving towards Jesus. I have a note here to check my time. As we've discussed before, we have no ending to this service, so here we go. (laughs) Next question. According to the scripture, talking about Ephesians 5, uh, verses 5 through 9, what does sexually immoral or impure mean? And the second part of that question, what does it mean as church not to partner with them or take no part in their works? Uh, This comes out of Ephesians 5. Verses 5 through 9 says, For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, somebody who worships idols, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Paul doesn't go into great or graphic detail about what he means by uh, sexual immorality or impurity here. I think it's important for me to remember that Paul is thoroughly Jewish as was Jesus. And sometimes we really want to distinguish between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, was Jesus' Bible. It was his instructions. It was uh, his book of prayer. And so the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, undergirds what Jesus and Paul have to say. Now, there are times where Jesus um, reinterprets gives a correct interpretation, or sometimes where he just kind of changes what had been said and practiced in the Old Testament. And I would love to do a sometime on all of those things that Jesus kind of reinterprets and changes. I would call it um, the big butts of the Bible. One one T in butt, right? (laughs) Because there are times where Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I tell you to live this way, okay? And so Jesus sometimes provides a new interpretation, but I think he makes it clear where he wants us to change or to reinterpret things. By the time of Jesus, it seems the Jewish understanding of the proper place of sexual activity is in the confines of a marriage between a husband and wife. At points in the Old Testament, it seems that the practice of polygamy was allowed but not endorsed. I mean, we've got um, Abraham has a messy marriage situation, right? It is not clean and cut. Uh, you know, sometimes folks talk about, you know, biblical marriage. And, and I want to say, 
let's be careful about which part we're pointing to um, because Abraham's got this messy relationship. David's got some weird stuff happening, and some of that he gets condemned for. Um, Solomon's got, like, wives and concubines like crazy, okay? Um, and so sometimes in the Old Testament, polygamy was allowed. But by the time of Jesus and Paul, uh, the Jewish understanding has been, look, this is not what God's plan is. And so sexual immorality for Paul, I think, would be sex outside of marriage, whether that's before marriage or outside of this marriage covenant. And then in verse 5, it says, there's to be no immoral, impure, or greedy person. Such a person is an idolater and has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And I think uh, Paul is talking primarily about our core identity, who we are at the heart. I certainly hope Paul is not talking about anyone who has ever done anything immoral, impure, or greedy, has no inheritance in the kingdom. Because I don't know about you, I've something in my life that has been immoral, impure, and I've had greed in my life. I don't think Paul's saying that if you ever have had something like that happen in your life that you have no inheritance, because this would, I mean, just completely rewrite scripture. Say, for all have sinned and have no hope. That's not what scripture says. That's not what the good news is. For all have sinned, but Jesus has come and rescued us from that death. So Paul's argument seems to be moving towards living into the lightness and the newness of following Christ. But Paul also knows that we are works in progress. And let me, uh, for a moment, skip the second part of that question and, and answer the next one. The next question is, what does expose the deeds of darkness mean in Ephesians 5.11? That says, um, starting at verse 8, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And Paul here is talking about how we used to live in an old, dark, what he calls a Gentile way. Paul calls us out of that way of living and being, and Paul says that our lives are supposed to be fruitful. And Paul here says that that means goodness, righteousness, and truth. Elsewhere, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we see all of those fruits throughout Ephesians. It's just not given us in the, the nice, easy, memorable list that he does elsewhere. But Paul says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. And for Paul, that includes sexual immorality, impurity, greed, coarse joking, foolish talk. He says, rather, expose them. So here's our question. What does that mean, to expose them? I think there are different kinds of fruitless deeds of darkness. There's deeds of darkness that we do as individuals. There's 
darkness that happen in larger groups, whether that's national things that are wrong uh, in our society or parts that are uh, of our system that are wrong, that are deeds of darkness. Uh, for some folks, this means always that we need to have billboards and protests and we need to publicly denounce every little possible sinful wrong thing. And you pick your political issue and insert it here. And there are deeds of darkness that do need to be denounced publicly. One that we all agree on is sex trafficking. That's wrong. It's bad. That is evil. And we need to stand up for folks that are victims of that. We need to, to step in. But what does Paul go on to say? He said it's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. Paul doesn't even want to mention some of the stuff that happens behind closed doors or that folks are involved in. But Paul here specifically has in mind the way we live as a way of light. We expose the darkness when we shine the light by the way that we live. If I look at how does Jesus expose evil? Well, one of the ways that Jesus talks about exposing evil, one of the things I think would is hardest. Jesus says, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other as well. He's not talking about sitting back and being a punching bag and doing nothing. He's talking about continuing to live such a way that calls that darkness into question. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. And neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. We all sang that song as kids. Hide it under a bush. Oh, no. I thought it, for the longest time, I thought it was hide it under a bushel. And I was like, man, pint. We were being very specific. A bushel. Never mind. He says, instead, put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Look, there is evil and darkness aplenty in our world. And some of that systemic evil needs to be addressed through creative, nonviolent intervention in which the body of Christ discerns together what that looks like. But too often, the world sees uh, Christians who are just condemning everything that they disagree with. There was a study done a number of years ago, and, and it's uh, results have been uh, highly reported that the number one adjective used of the church in the West, the church in America, is judgmental. And the church is known more for what we're against rather than what we're for. It seems like Paul says the better way is to live out the full extent of what it means to live in the light. The early church in Acts chapter 2 becomes known as a people who are on fire for God, literally. Pentecost, it's at the beginning of uh, Acts. Go and read that story this afternoon. And they're learning, and they're worshiping, and they're fellowshipping, and they have this incredible commitment to meeting the needs of those around them, such that they are selling property, they are selling possessions in order to take care of each other. 
And what happens at the end of Acts chapter 2 is it says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Folks are seeing the church living out the light. And they're being drawn to it. They're coming and they say, I, man, what, what is going on here? I want in. I want to be a part of this. Tell me more about this Jesus that you're so on fire for. I want to know more of this, this light that you're living out. Roman emperors are trying to figure out what's going on when the early church is caring for all the poor, all the hungry, all the needy. Say, I, what, what's with this group of Christians? They're so committed to living out the light. Sometimes the kingdom of God grows best through fascination. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that if we committed to living out the gospel with the radical devotion of the early church or the persecuted church, that way of living in the light would so expose the darkness for what it is that people would be drawn to the light. And some wouldn't. And we would see that for what it is, a refusal to live in the light. So I think exposing darkness is something that we're called to do all the time. To expose ourselves to the light of Jesus and to find out that old darkness that still is at work in our own lives. And then we're also called to live a life worthy of the calling we've received. And when we live like that, we expose the darkness around us to the light. And sometimes the church needs to creatively expose evil in our world. So, and I hope that and pray that when we do that, it comes from a place of walking in the way of love. It drops right into the middle of Ephesians. So I think it's, it, it's not about partnering. Um, we're not adding to the darkness. But Paul takes it further and tells us to expose the darkness. Like the basic storyline of Ephesians goes something like this. Jesus is going to be king over everything. And because of God's grace, Jesus was sent to show us how to live and to die in our place and to conquer sin and death. And we don't have to earn our way back into relationship with God. In fact, we can't. Rather, we are rescued by God's grace through putting trust or being faithful to God. And this faith is one that we put into action. Faith that gets lived out as the church comes together to follow Jesus. Faith that gets lived out in our individual lives as well. A genuine faith, the kind Paul is talking about that impacts every area of our life. So I pray that we may grow more into the beautiful bride that Jesus longs for us to be. I pray that we are able to shine Christ's light into the darkness of our own lives and into the darkness of the world around us. As we do that, may we walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up.
for us. I think this is uh, what I'm taking away from Ephesians as we work through this together. As we close this morning, I invite the praise team to come up and uh, we'll sing again about how we live because